Hello, everyone. Welcome to this 56th, 57th. Welcome to an episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. That's a great way to start live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 50-something something episode of the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm joined today by Jacob, sitting here in the same room with me. Jacob, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I just saw one of my favorite movies from my childhood. It was actually released the same year that I was born, uh, which is interesting because you wouldn't think that would be one of my favorite movies, <laughs> but it is probably the movie from the era of the 80s that I have seen the most often, followed closely by uh, Labyrinth. Yeah, I, Labyrinth is probably in my top three as well, but um, for anyone who didn't see the episode title, what we're talking about today is the second Star Trek movie, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. And um, as Jacob and I were talking before, um, purely conversationally, not that we have tried recording the intro to this a few times and failed, purely in a conversational conversation we were having before, that's a terrible set of words, but anyway, one thing Jacob was commenting on was that this is kind of an odd movie to look at as an example of Star Trek, because, you know, we've talked on this podcast many times that one of the reasons why we love Star Trek so much is that Roddenberry was very clearly attempting to in the sort of manner of the um, other science fiction literature of the time, like Asimov and Heinlein and people like that, he was using science fiction to hold up a mirror to our own world, to ask deep questions about ethics and morality, and to get science fiction away from spaceship battles. This is, I think, one of my favorite, if not my flat-out favorite Star Trek movie, and it's almost the furthest from that idea of the movies, because this is mostly a great spaceship battle. And as many have actually commented, really, it's a great submarine battle. Right. Uh, particularly the, the last scene in the nebula, uh, where they explore that space, pun most certainly intended. Right. Uh, also, just as an aside, I love that you continue to, that you're continuing to, to build the myth that we're a one-and-done podcast, <laughs> and not, some, not, not a group of people who have ever had to re-record an entire episode with somebody else, like, or, or entire segments of episodes. But anyway. Paul, um, if you're wondering when Jacob will let go of his bitterness about you deleting that part of your podcast, it will happen one day. That day is not today. Are you kidding um, me, Paul? I love that you did that. It's <laughs> given me so many comic miles uh, that like, I, I feel like I owe you a debt. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but moving on to, to Wrath of Khan yeah. specifically. Um, it's funny because, like, yeah, when, when you look at it on the surface, and you can do this with, with a lot of media that we digest, right? You can look at Daredevil on the surface, the, right. the thing we talk about constantly, right? Um, and just go, well, it's an action show, right? Uh, you can look at Saving Private Ryan and go, it's a war movie. That doesn't mean that there aren't interesting uh, ethical considerations to, to discuss. There aren't uh, things that our characters are doing and in, in, in exploring or that the story is exploring in the interactions between the characters that aren't worth discussing in this context. And for us, we also have the, the meta concerns. Uh, right. And in this movie, it, Gene Roddenberry had a lot of very good, very progressive ideas for the time. <laughs> and a lot of them still hold, but some of them are a little bit dated. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're held in an earlier belief system before we discovered a lot more about ourselves and about and we'll definitely get into that. And I, but I raised that first comment. Actually, you raised it as well about how how more militaristic this is, and in an action movie, because I think it actually highlights a point we've made in a couple of other podcast episodes, which is 
you know, you, you and I talk about it when we talk about Civil War and things like that, that we would love an entire movie without fight scenes. That is just the philosophical, ethical ramblings and stuff like this. The problem is, and that's what Star Trek the TV show was for the most part. Star Trek the motion picture tried to do that as a motion picture. And it bombed horribly. In part, in part because it was, a, even as a Star Trek episode, it was a pretty bad example of even that. But also, it just wasn't, it didn't have the big box office flair that people wanted. And, and I think it's interesting that as much, I do love this movie, and I do love it as an example of Star Trek, and as we'll get into, it does raise a lot of great issues the way Star Trek does. I also think it's important to note that it was, until next generation at least, I think, probably one of, if not the most commercially successful Star Trek movie, and it did that by going pretty far away from the Star Trek idea towards a more traditional spaceships fighting, you know, kind of action movie. Right, right. It's a lot more, uh, let's shoot at each other in space to solve our problems, than it is exploring uh, the the meaning of humanity, right? right? Or what it, what it means to, to be human or to do the right thing or to be the the lesser in the in a lot of Star Trek episodes they're dealing with their intellectual and technological superiors and what that right. how, how they explore that space or in the reverse more so in next gen than original series they're exploring what happens when we have all of this we have all of this medical technology for example we could save these people but by doing so we're prohibiting them from developing their own technology and this is also something the Orville explored in, <laughs> in its final episode. God, I love that. And we still have to talk well, about that. I, I will continue to say that, like, of my favorite um, Star Trek shows, Orville is probably in the top three. Yeah. You know, like, certainly I say it is a much better Star Trek show than the current Star Trek with Bond. Um, and I would say better than Enterprise, too. But that's that's getting into a different can of worms. Um, so let's jump into this movie itself. I mean, we talked for a few minutes about what, um, as we do sometimes when we kind of do media reviews, Let's just start with the, the movie itself before we dive into the epics. What what do you think it is that you love so much about this movie? So, Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan is framed very well. Uh, they they did a lot of things right with it. The first right thing they did was to to pay service to fans of the original series, not only by making the movie call back to a an episode from the original series, Space Seed by bringing back the character of Condon and Son, um, but also by taking um, by taking that same framing they use for most of the episodes where it's this it's this triad of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy yeah. and giving us that. Giving us those interactions again where you've got McCoy and Spock with their kind of adversarial, dare I say it, tsundere relationship uh, and then uh, Kirk and Spock with a very supportive uh, friendship, and when and then when they're interacting together, they play off each other in in very interesting ways and anticipate what each other are going right. to do, and then move to intercept. Uh, the, there's the humor when when you're exchanging between Kirk and McCoy. That was the that was the money in the original series, right? There was a reason those three characters were center stage so often. And it's because that chemistry, that interplay, was what made was what made every episode of Star Trek, the original series, even the ones that felt kind of bad, really entertaining <laughs> to watch. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, especially because, and this is something that's very hard to do, and we see this in Marvel and DC, really wrestling with how do you do a callback to your original source material 
without alienating the fans who haven't seen, who don't know the source material. I, like you, I want, this was one of the first movies I remember watching, this and Star Wars. Um, I was about five years old when it came out. Um, I probably had watched it a hundred times before I ever saw Space Seed. And when I saw Space Seed, it deepened my understanding of the movie, and it answered some questions I had about the movie. But I never needed to watch Space Seed to enjoy the movie. And I think that's, it is one of its real strengths, is that it manages to remind you enough of what happened and, and fill in the gaps if you haven't seen it without um, hitting you over the head with it. And I, I do think, as we, we commented when watching the movie itself, somewhat that's a factor of the technology of the time. You know, today, I think one thing people realize is if you make a movie about, you know, Starfire or, you know, some other like thing that's not been seen on the screen in a long time, because Starfire's been seen on a small, small screen, everyone can go to the internet and immediately look it up. Mm-hmm. Here, you know, very few people probably had any kind of recording of the TNG episodes. They're on syndications. So you might see them a couple of times. But most fans, if they'd seen Star Trek, if they'd seen Space Seed, it had been three, five, fifteen years since they had last seen it, depending on how much they were watching syndication. And and so I think you didn't have quite the same level of and as we'll talk about, some details are completely non congruous. Like there are some things they just radically changed because I think you could at that point, because there weren't people saying, All right, I'm gonna to go to IMDB and immediately check was this how it was in the T V show. You know, and so they were able to do that callback to the main character will also change a lot of things. Right, there wasn't the page on IMDb about continuity where somebody can go and, and share, hey, by the way, Chekhov wasn't part of the show then. Yeah. So how does <laughs> Khan know him and how does he know Khan? What, walk us through that journey. So, and let's start with that. Let, let me, I, I know, I, I, I saw it earlier today. You probably haven't seen it recently, but I know you know the episode Space Seed. Let's finish a few minutes talking about that because it sets it up so well. Um, what, what do you kind of, when you think, remember that episode Space Seed, what kind of comes to mind for you? So what, especially in the stuff it brings up. So I remember two things very prominently about Space Seed. So I've actually seen it somewhat recently. My, uh, my, my lovely wife and I are watching through all of, uh, the Star Trek television series. Oh, nice. Uh, in, in chronological order, published order. Um, but, uh, and TOS was at this point a couple of years ago when we finished it, but, uh, when watching the original series and watching Space Seed, that was probably the third or fourth time I'd seen that episode. Um, so I used to catch them when they were uh, in syndication. And every time I watch that episode, the thing that stands out to me the most is how Khan's interactions with different with characters of different genders is radically different. Yeah. Um, to the point of so. It's that whole thing that was a, a it was a very popular idea at the time. You see it in, in a fair amount of media, where guys want to, girls want them, guys want to be them, that yeah. kind of thing, which just is like super alpha. When we thought the man's we, man, yeah. When when we thought that we were like exactly like animal, exactly like pack animals, exactly like wolves. And we could even learn wolves aren't quite like we thought they were. <laughs> so, like, basically, our, our science was poor when it came to the human condition, and sometimes still is. But the particular, yeah, exactly, he had that that very domineering personality, and so that struck me. And another thing that struck me was the the admiration that Kirk clearly yeah. had for Khan, 
and what's really interesting about that, people who, who have heard criticism of Kirk's character in the original series, even if you haven't seen it, you know that he's got a reputation for being something of a womanizer, right? And so it actually makes a lot of sense and is very consistent with Kirk's character that Kirk would see somebody like Khan and go, man, why am I not more like this person? Yeah. This is this is the ideal man. Yeah, right? I mean, even that phrase, womanizer, you know, at that point they would have called it a ladies' man. Right. And it's very much, in, in that way, I've never actually made the connection before, but Kirk's attitude towards women and James Bond's attitude towards women, they're both supposed to be manly men. And yeah, I think James Bond had that a similar kind of reaction. Yes. And and one thing I think is it, it's interesting is the show actually calls that out a little bit, not necessarily the the womanizing part, although that I think you're right, that's a very the, the whole thing with him and Lieutenant MacGyver is very interesting to modern eyes. Um interesting uh, is one way to put it. Yeah, I mean problematic is broken, another... all sorts of things like yeah, that. Unless you're into that sort of thing. Well right, I mean that it is like, to me, I mean one thing that was interesting was it, it's they are creating a dynamic of because one thing that you see in the show is that this character Lieutenant MacGyver's is clearly very attracted to a man who's willing to treat her like a woman and tells her how to wear her hair and all this kind of stuff. The kind of thing is that today some people consensually choose to go into that kind of relationship, mm. but in the show they're implying that at least to Khan and her, that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, but my point I was going to was, while Kirk and McCoy and all of them don't comment on that, there's a point in time where they all talk about having like read about him in history class and things like this, and kind of having some admiration for him in that kind of way you might say like, Oh, Genghis Khan, you know, he was a, like today, we might say Genghis Khan, he was a horrible person, he did all these terrible things, but wow, look at how he conquered the world, and look at Caesar, or Alexander. And, and there's a great scene where Spock is not understanding what they're doing. He's like, this person was a dictator, he did these terrible things. And, and Kirk says, I write it down, Mr. Spock, you misunderstand, uh, I, I should, uh, yeah, Kirk's voice, uh, Mr. Spock, you misunderstand us. We can be against him. But still admire him. It's a terrible Kirk voice, but you, uh, you, you get my point. I wish I could go back and edit that out. Uh, but the point is there, he's saying, he's holding up this tension of that they can admire someone while still not wanting to support him in any way. Um, that they can be against him without wanting to, while admiring him. And that's, I mean, that feeds into so much we've talked about in terms of villains, you know? I was um, just going to say the same thing. Like, it's literally what we say about Kingpin every time yeah. every time his character comes up or, or when we're talking about um, well, I, I Killmonger. Would, I, would well. I, would, I would I think more Killmonger than... Right. Because I think the thing is, with Killmonger and, to extent, Kingpin, or actually both of them, we agree with their motives. Yeah. Kingpin is badass in a way that I think... I don't think... Yeah. King. Uh, I'm sorry. Killmonger is badass yes. in a way. Um, Kingpin isn't necessarily, but but certainly Khan is that. Like I don't think anyone agrees with Khan's motives, but they're like, but he was just so cool, you know. He was just, and, and that's so interesting, especially with Spock being so confused by it. Right, and I mean it makes sense. He's from a he is from a different culture, right? The Vulcans have in the in the time that we're approaching there, they have a completely different frame. If, if everything is based in logic. Obviously, you're going to look at something like a dictatorship and and someone who was cool and go, this person was clearly poor. Right. Clear, like, there is nothing to admire because look at what they did. Um, whereas for, for us, there is an emotional appeal and it's, it's, it's kind of upsetting, but it makes sense to, to power, to right. accomplishment, right? When we see somebody, you know, 
uh, Eddie Izzard has has a comedy mm-hmm. bit that he does where he says, you know, once you once someone's killed, uh, uh, you know, a hundred thousand people, like uh, you kill one person, you know, you're a murderer and that's terrible. You kill ten people and you're a serial killer and we lock you in a box and forget about you. You kill a hundred thousand people and we're almost like, well done. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's not like well done because we we're happy about it, right? But it's 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 in a way well, impressive. It, it's that line from Stalin that one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a, is a statistic, right? And once you're talking about it with numbers, it's hard for the human mind to still like think about it in the individual terms, and so we just glaze over it in this really problematic way. And it's um, it's the same way when we're looking at casualties for for a war report. We look at we can look at a large number and go. Oh, that's tragic. But the death of somebody we know, a single person we know, actually impacts us usually a lot more. Right. And that, I mean, it has to do with, with empathy and human connection, but it is a way where people can, can read about Khan's atrocities and Khan's accomplishments and be impressed. Right. And, and that's, and that's something, impressed. I mean, the movie itself takes advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, many people die on the Enterprise when Khan first attacks. But there's one particular character who we're introduced to for a few seconds, and we form a little bit of a connection to him. And then when that character in particular dies, uh, Scotty's nephew, who kind of deleted scene, but one mm-hmm. of the, the engineering guys, that connects to us more in a way. Well, I really wish they hadn't cut that particular scene. I, I remember yeah. uh, watching the deleted scenes, I think, last time I watched this. Um, and it has so much more emotional impact really when does. he's directly connected to a main character, which in and of itself is probably a bit problematic, but it makes Scott, it makes uh, James Dewan's performance in that scene so much more impactful. Yeah. When you realize that he's not just this distraught because it's it's a crew member, but because he just lost family, who's like going to be the next generation. And right. since the entire framing of the movie is about uh, is about aging, it's about dealing with your own mortality. Uh, and dealing with your family. I mean, yeah. Kirk discovering his son. Yeah, that's a connection I hadn't even made. And but dealing with the next generation. And, like, that's 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 what brings you hope, right? The right. new life is what's supposed to help console us as we face our own mortalities. And when Scotty has to see the reverse of that, he gets to live on. And, and his young nephew, who is doing the right thing and doing exactly what Scotty would have done at that age. Mm-hmm. When, when, yeah, it's just... Yeah. It's a powerful thing. Well, I, I want to talk about one other thing that's specific to the TV show because it somewhat gets dropped in the movie, but I think it's an interesting part of Khan's character. Um, in the movie, he, I'm sorry, in the TV show, they make a point of telling us that he is Sikh. And that one of the things they're pointing out is that um, the, the eugenic, uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, although we'll be spoiling it all over the place, we already have, um, part of the idea of this is that in the late 20th century, there was this eugenics program, these superhumans were created, a uh, very kind of Nietzschean Superman idea, um, and they tried to take over the world. And part of the idea is that these were, out of the eugenics program, created in from the um, sort of genetic material of races all over the world. And I do think, the more, I think that was an interesting point by Roddenberry to sort of say a eugenics program wouldn't just be Aryan, it wouldn't mm-hmm. just be American, it was these races from all over the world. Um, but but the fact that he is specifically Sikh, I, I thought was very interesting. And I, I, I one of our um, uh, listeners actually wrote in about this um, uh, on Twitter. Hopscotch Friday wrote in, and I quote: "Now my phone's going to speak. What if Space Seed was written in response to general suspicions in Western countries 
about the growing popularity of Eastern mysticism philosophy, particularly in the counterculture. Um, by the time of Star Trek II, Khan represents fears of evil cults, brainwashing eels, etc. Um, and it's something I hadn't thought about, and I, I certainly think Roddenberry would have had not wanted anything to do with that. I think Roddenberry would have been very much... Um, so I, I, I have trouble believing that that would be intentional, but, but it is an interesting thought of, you know, was this was the time that Hare, Hare Krishna was sort of becoming a thing, mm-hmm. and there was, among parents at least, a lot of, you know, racism and, and, and phobia uh, towards Hinduism and, and Islam and Sikh. Um, I guess Sikhism. I don't know if that's the word, but, yeah, but I actually don't know either. I am familiar with the with the religion, right? The, the religion of the Sikh right. uh, of Sikhs. Um, clearly, those were quite stigmatized at the time. I have trouble thinking that Khan would have intentionally written a character to try to lay into that. Maybe it was meant intentionally to kind of mock no, that. I'm not sure, but it's it is interesting to think about it in that context. Examine the ch- examine the choice is what I would say that because the fact that chose to make Khan a seat specifically, uh, their precepts are incredibly useful. By, even, even by standards of the religions that, that us, you know, European Westerners are used to, mm. right? And so, but they have this reputation of being, uh, I mean, they, especially at the time, had a reputation. There's, they have rituals. There's uh, one of their rituals involved the use of a ceremonial dagger, if I remember correctly. And I mean, if I'm getting this wrong, I'm sorry. I learned this in high school, so take this all with with a grain of salt. And again, I apologize if I'm if I'm misrepresenting anything. But it, what I remember was that it's a it's it's a very introspective and very very peaceful set of philosophical precepts within right. this religion. And if Roddenberry had chosen a different one to you could I. From that region, there are many that he could have picked that I would have been like, that's a strong argument that he attempted to, to stir the pot and fear monger. Right. In this particular case, that choice to me, unless he was just ignorant, which is a possibility, um, because if he was ignorant of it, you know, all bets are off. Right. But, but if he knew, then it, it was a way potentially to try to raise awareness, but then he put it in onto somebody who's ultimately a villain, not a very nice person. So, like, I I struggle. Yeah, I I don't yeah I don't know where you, I, I think like I said we don't know anything about it. I I think I think there's a danger kind of sort of reading too much into that, but it's right. certainly an interesting question. And if nothing else, the point you're making about that the peacefulness of that, at least as we understand it, either one of us are right. by any means uh, scholars of this topic. Um, but it, it is interesting <clears throat> because. One of the po- I often think Spock is the mouthpiece for Roddenberry in the show quite a lot. Um, and one of the points that Spock makes early on is they're talking about how these eugenic uh, creations wound up trying to take over the world. Spock says, and again I quote, superior ability breeds superior ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a theme we'll talk about when we get to the movie because I think it's a, an important theme of this, of the, of the whole Khan character. It's this idea that, um, at, at, at least as Roddenberry is, is uh, positing that to have this much power is going to, it's, it's impossible to have that much power without having that much ambition. And if there was this perception at the time, whether accurate or not, that of the Sikhs as connected to Hare Krishna or like, you know, connected Eastern mysticism ideas in general, which the West didn't really understand much of, sort of understood, thinking of those as super peaceful, then it would be very interesting what Roddenberry is trying to say is, even a Sikh, even someone from this kind of a culture, right. when given incredible power, 
could become incredibly ambitious. Right, and I mean, it's it's obvious even in the movie that this is this is something they're still playing with, right? right. Because uh, when, when we first meet Khan in the movie, he is clearly just interested in in revenge on Kirk. As soon as he finds out that you can get the power to be God and make his make life from nothing, now he has two objectives. Right? right. He just he cannot abandon that. He wants he wants both. Yeah. Right. And it's just it you know in a lot of ways I think he would have been successful if he could have just focused on the one like mm-hmm. he got. Yeah. But well, anyway, as we'll talk about, that's not accidental. Kirk Kirk's way of outsmarting him is by playing against his ambition and his ego. Yep. But we'll get into that. Um, so let's talk about the movie itself. What are some of the things that the movie brought up for you? I think especially, um, let me actually direct it a little more, the movie starts with the classic scene of the Kobayashi Maru. Right. This test of, you know, how do you face a no-win scenario. Um, what's your take on that, on that scene? So, knowing what I know about uh, the entirety of the movie and about Kirk's particular story with the Kobayashi Maru from start to finish, because if you think about it, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is his Kobayashi movie. Right. Right. And uh, let's, so, I, I realize, as much as I wish that everybody has ever ever has seen this movie, I think a lot of our fans probably haven't. So sure. can you take a minute to explain right. what is a Kobayashi Maru? So, so the Kobayashi Maru test is a, the, the premise behind it, the, the uh, premise is not the word I want to say, the conceit behind the Kobayashi Maru is that every commanding officer is going to be faced with a situation to which there is no correct answer, where there's no there's no possibility for them to to emerge victorious and everything being okay by the end of it. This is covered also as in a, an episode of Next Gen in a slightly different way when Troy is trying to take a bridge officer's test. It's this idea that when you are in a position of command, you must accept the possibility that you will not be able to succeed. And right. your decisions may end up getting your entire crew killed, right? That's the Kobayashi Maru test. Is it's meant to to be a test of character to see how you how you deal with being confronted with that. Do you freeze up? Do you uh, do you like go into denial and make bad decisions, or do you run by the book, make sharp, quick decisions, adapt quickly, but still fail? Right. They want to see how you do under pressure, and they want to see how you deal with it. Um, which there's a lot of there's a lot of good ideas present in that. Um, when I say that the movie is Kirk's Kobayashi Maru test, and I say that every bridge officer in Starfleet, every every flag officer, every every uh, commander in Starfleet has to take this test. Ultimately, um, Kirk didn't. Right, and this is a major plot point: is that Kirk took it three times, and on his third attempt. He hacked the test so he could win, uh, because he didn't like not losing, or he didn't like losing. He didn't want to lose. Um, this makes his opening interaction with Savick, who is the uh, she's the officer who's taking the test, particularly <clears throat> very importantly as a Vulcan. Right, very importantly as a Vulcan, um, who stands up and goes, "Do you have any suggestions? What did I do wrong?" Because she doesn't know. That's part of the thing is that you don't know going into it. This is a no win test. Right. Right. Uh, so she's looking for how could I have done, how could I have succeeded, what, what did I, what did I miss, basically. Um, and Kirk, in a very patronizing way, says, look, the po- that's not the point of the test. Right. And this is, again, coming from somebody who 
completely missed the point of the test because he just thumbed his nose at it, got a commendation for being creative, and never had to deal with it. Right. But I, I think my my impression, at least of that scene, is that we're supposed to think the way <clears throat> excuse me, the way Kirk treats Sabak is negative. Because as you said, I think the whole point of the movie is that Kirk has to face the Kobayashi mm-hmm. Maru. Because uh spoiler alert, um they wind up in a situation where Kirk is successful, but at the cost of the death of his best friend and his first officer. And I, my take on this is it's supposed to be that in that in that experience, he does face the no-win scenario in that basically what he finds is an option that is less bad than every other. Um, and it's um, he wins and then he defeats Khan, but he still doesn't fully win because he doesn't succeed with everything. And I, to me, that's one of the most brilliant parts of the movie because I think when you watch the original series, one of the critiques you can easily bring against Kirk is he is that flyboy. You know, he is that person who always thinks he can, um, to, to quote Last Jedi, you know, jump into a, the bridge of a starship and blow something up. Um, and, and I actually think of him, like, to me, Kirk and Poe Delarian are very similar characters in that regard. And I love that this movie is almost sort of being critical of the entire series in that way and saying, as great as Kirk was, he never had to face this, and now we're going to make him face this and show that growth that happens when he does. Right. And it, it's it's the ma- most major, in my opinion, plot point mm-hmm. of the movie is Kirk's realization uh, by the end of it that he had always, he like, he had thought himself clever. He had thought himself, you know, the wisest and best and, and, and best and brightest for having done this and for, for having been able to, to cheat death, basically. And then when he's sitting there on, on the bridge facing his imminent demise and the imminent demise of this crew of, of effectively children from his perspective of, of new trainees, people who are far less experienced, who he roped into this voyage, um, and he's faced with the no win. You know, he's, he's, he actually is frozen up. He's just, you know, he's calling engineering and being like, can you fix this? Can you fix this? Yeah. Because he's been conditioned by Montgomery Scott, who does some things with physics that are probably improper uh, <laughs> during the series. And he continues to have a reputation for doing so, for, for literally being a miracle worker. And so he's, you know, he's been conditioned that he doesn't have to face this. Yeah. And then he gets out of it. And he's like, oh, thank goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Scotty. And then he figures out that it wasn't, it wasn't any decision he made. He didn't send Spock down there to fix the problem. Right. Spock solved it for him. Right. And it's in that moment where it's, it's Spock's sacrifice that gets him out of it. And in that moment, it feel, I, it's when I feel Kirk realizes that what Spock did was he took the failure of the test so that Kirk could learn from it. Yeah, and it's just, goddamn, that's some good writing. It really is, and I, I you're right. I hadn't even thought of that uh, until now, but correct because Kirk, like, so to set this up for those of you who haven't seen it, the final scene, as we said, is very much it's a submarine battle movie in which the Enterprise is going up against the ship that Khan has, the Reliant, and it's just a beautifully done, incredibly you know stirring spaceship battle, um, but where Kirk wins. By using Khan's, you know, abilities against him. He, go- I know we'll talk about more of this in a second when we get into his ambition, but he basically goads Khan into a bad situation by playing on his ego and his ambition. And then he, 
is able to realize the limits of Khan's thinking and, and basically, you know, get into a superior battle position and, and win, win the space fight. So Kirk has won that part, but then Khan has this ace in the hole that he has this super weapon, the Genesis Project, that can blow up both of them. And, and that's where you're right, when Kirk freezes. Right. And that's when, so on the one hand, Kirk beats Khan, but Khan is able to act, Khan actually sort of beats Kirk in the end. And it's Spock who saves him. And you're right, that's such an interesting thing, is that this, this you know, thing that I think we think of as like the best space battle of Kirk's career, Kirk doesn't win. It's Spock who wins. No, he, he fights it to a stalemate. Right. Um, and it's, it's not even a stalemate. It's, it's a loss, loss. I don't know what you call Like, chess doesn't have a term for that. Right. Um, but yeah, both, both people lose. Um, and it is only Spock who comes up with a solution. It's by Spock mm-hmm. deciding... I'm going to lose, so right. that the crew doesn't have to. Um, and it's what's especially interesting about that is that while while Vulcan physiology, you know, they're longer lived and whatnot. I'm not sure that he was any more enough more tolerant of those radiation conditions versus anybody else um, on the ship. But I think what we're meant to take away from that is he was the one who was able to make the sacrifice, right? And Kirk. That wasn't something he was he was willing to do, um, and it's it's fascinating because I still think uh, like knowing what I know, Kirk makes the sacrifice much 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 later in his career in Star Trek Generations, right? Right, <clears throat> but that's because, and, and I feel like it is because he's already learned this lesson from Spock, right? Right after the takeaway of these events, he realizes that. There is something that he can give. There is a greater thing that he can do than he's ever done before, when given access to those situations. That the framing of the movie where where um Khan is wrapped up in Moby, Moby Dick, and Kirk is wrapped up in a very in another very good classic novel, right? Um, that's Dickens. Tale of Two Cities. Yes, it's Tale of Two Cities. I was all like, I'm pretty sure it's Tale of Two Cities and Dickens. <laughs> when you started doing another, want to eat my own hat. When you started doing the another good story, I was like, Jacob doesn't know the name of that, does he? No, no, I, I do know Tale of Two Cities. I was worried I was getting it wrong. Oh yeah, I read it in high school, and I'm like, is that the one that starts with the uh, best of times? Best of times. Time. Yep. It makes sense because it's all Prince of the Popper tale, right? It's the it's the story where you they switch places because for some reason they look identical and one of them gets their head chopped off and it's the commoner and yeah. yeah. <laughs> French Revolution was fucked up. Uh, well, yeah, and I think that there's a lot there because I think many times in the series and even at one point early in the first confrontation with Khan, Kirk offers to give himself up to save the rest of them. But I think there's always the invocation that he'll be able to fight his way out of it. You know, he always thinks it's not the Kobayashi Maru, it's not his own death. When Spock, again, for those who haven't seen it, what he basically does is he, the, the problem is that the ship's engines are offline and they're not going to be able to escape the bomb that Khan is setting off. That's going to be like this huge space bomb. And Spock goes down to the engine room and does things with flashing lights and gas to turn the engine back on while exposing himself to radiation so he dies. The physics of it are pretty fast and loose and we don't have to worry about that. Um, but you're right. I think it is something that, that Spock is a very Vulcan decision because for Spock, there isn't a sentimental connection to his own life. Like, I think Spock wants to survive, but for Spock, the idea of his own survival versus the survival of many is not even a concern in any way, shape, or form. Right. For um, him, the ethical choice is just, right. this is clearly right, so I'm going to do it. 
Which, by the way, not to take me off on a very big tangent, but to briefly say, there's many reasons why I don't love the Christopher Pine reboot of the Star Trek movies. I think they're perfectly fine action movies. I don't think they're Star Trek. But what they did when they basically retold The Wrath of Khan in the second movie, I think it's called Into Darkness, um, is fucked in so many ways. One major one of which is, again, forgive me for spoilers, they repeat the situation, but Kirk sacrifices himself for Khan. For Kirk sacrifices himself for Spock. Mm-hmm. And that just seems so wrong, given how much this is a very Spock thing to do. And anyway, that, that that's my tangent there. I haven't um, seen Star Trek Into Darkness out of protest, because I've already seen The Wrath of Khan, and they can't make it better. Yeah. It, it was such a, wa- it's such a waste of them. The Cumberbatch, it was, it was a total waste. Um, let's move on to something else I thought was really interesting. Um, one of the things that, and here I think this is maybe the biggest departure from the TV show. In the TV, it is made very clear that Starfleet is a is an avenue of exploration and of discovery and of civilization building, and that there is a a military aspect for the purpose of survival when needed, and occasionally when having wars like with the Klingons. But it is very much not the point of Starfleet. This movie throws that completely out the window. Because in this movie, we're constantly talking about, I think, a very real-world tension, which is the tension between, in science, of does science go towards research uh, for like life-sustaining purposes, or does it go towards the military? Um, what was your kind of take on how the movie sets up that tension? So, I mean, I, I really like that they addressed it. Um, and honestly, so part of my, my struggle with, uh, with the concept of the Federation in Star Trek was answered in this movie, where I wondered, wait, do all of the jobs end up going to Starfleet? Is Starfleet like this big amalgam of all of the best minds? And so all of the good scientists go there, all of the good doctors go there, and it, it, that's not what happens uh, in the Federation. But we're led to believe it, basically, for, for a majority of, of, of the original series. And here, we get a civilian science project, and at first, and, and by their uh, by their uh, understanding, you know, Starfleet's helping them, uh, but Starfleet's not, you know, at the helm, right? They're they're not in command of the situation. When when they're told that the Federation's going to come and, and commandeer the Genesis Project, right? All the materials. Uh, when Starfleet is mentioned, they're mentioned as the military. Right. Very specifically. And when you think about it, every single vessel, so they're in Navy, right? Starfleet is 100% in Navy. They have, they have ships in three-dimensional space that, uh, if you exit the hull of the ship, you will almost instantaneously <laughs> die due to mostly pressure consumes. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, decompression versus compression, but it's the same kind of thing. So they're, it, like, yes. The, 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 they're, they're well armed, there aren't, even their exploration vessels, even their science vessels, have a full bank of phasers, they have torpedoes, like, not calling the Federation a military organization, uh, which they, like, they don't really start doing that heavily until, uh, the later part of Next Generation and all throughout Deep Space Nine, I feel was a bit disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, and so anytime we see it, like, portrayed that way, uh, like here in, in Wrath of Khan, I'm full. 
because that's obviously what's happening, and I, I want it to be made. Yeah. And it feels to me, though, that I think you're right. They go more towards that in later um, DS9 and, and TNG. But even there, the, the impression that I have there is that Starfleet is a force for exploration and discovery that has the potential to shift to a military footing during wartime. Mm-hmm. And so that during the Dominion War and during the conflict with the Klingons and the Romulans, it shifts in a military direction. Here, though, we've made very clear, this is a military full stop, you mm-hmm. know, with, with some discovery aspects, but even there, like, with the ship, the Reliant, is doing exploration work on behalf of these civilian scientists, but it right. really plays into the whole civilian military aspect, which I, again, I just thought was right. really interesting. I, and I love Carol Marcus's uh, exchange with Chekhov. Um, the whole, the, the, the something you can transplant conversation. Um, speaking as a scientist who sometimes has had to deal with people who don't understand what you do or how the process works, um, somebody effectively asking you, well, can we just fix it? Can, like, effectively, can you just squeeze it in, make some room? Those kinds of, like, just shows a, a broad misunderstanding of the science, and that's clear that that's what she's upset about there. Saying, no, look, we can't introduce this into an environment that has any organic material or the whole thing is going to not work. Right. Um, and so the like it's it's very clear in that dichotomy that the crew of the Reliance is being set up as the for lack of a better like like the the workers who don't know, you know, what, what they're dealing with and they're the scientists are trying to get them to, you know, get some basic information. It's like, no, just just find what we ask you to find. Right. Find the dead planet <laughs> for us, please. Why are you trying to make this work? Yeah. So what I I've got a list of so normally we have an outline that we mostly ignore but sort of follow. But today, uh, because this is more just kind of a off the cuff, we just watched the episode, we just watched the movie responding to it. We're kind of bouncing around, but and I have some things I want to go through, but what about you and your notes? What was the topic you wanted to bring up? So we talked about uh, Kurt's interaction with Sadek. He has another uh, he has another one later where he's very very patronizing and condescending to, to Sadek, which I do not appreciate, and I wanted to make sure I named that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there's the, the major elephant in the room here is that they are referring to a female officer as Mr., um, which you could say that at the time that might be considered progressive by a particular mentality, by a particular philosophy, but I think nowadays that's pretty clearly tone deaf, um, and, like, I don't know, it, it makes me uncomfortable every time. Yeah, and I, I remember I've heard the debate back, back and forth on this, and I think there are some real-world examples of militaries that have done things like that, where the idea was, and again, like you said, it's this sort of like, we fix racism by letting everyone be white. Right. You know, we fix sexism by letting everyone be thought of as though they were men. Um, which is like, oh great, so you're saying that you'll ignore someone's womanhood. You're basically saying that we are willing to treat her as an equal in spite of her being a woman. Right. Like, I understand that that's the thought of with progress at the time, Obviously, to modern ears, I think it really feels off. Right, um, because the the obviously the inherent assumption that uh, masculinity is the you know at all the superior form is just completely bullshit. And yet, I did think it was interesting that this movie is among among many ways it breaks. Like, yes, it's sort of an action movie, but it also breaks the mold. 
one of the ways in which is all the heroes are in their 50s, mm. if not older, and that includes, granted, there's not much for women characters to do in this movie, but Carol Marcus is an important character, and she's clearly a woman in her 40s or 50s. She's clearly around Kirk's age. She is the mother of an adult child. Um, you often, in these movies, find a way to have a young, attractive a- a- actress who can be a love interest of sorts for our main male characters. Mm. And the fact that the movie, yes, Kirstie Alley is, is meant to be a little bit that, but but still it's so much less than you get in other movies that that was one thing where I was like, okay, there's a lot of really problematic gender dynamics in this movie, but putting a, a woman who's not young front and center as an important character and as a, not necessarily a love interest, but clearly a former flame of our main character that felt kind of progressive in a way that I that I did really appreciate. And not only that, but she's also she's important in many ways, and she has accomplishments that are entirely hers. Right? Yeah. The Genesis, the Genesis project. Let's be clear: this this thing that that Dr. Carol Marcus has devised and pitched and got funding, or however it works in the future, <laughs> where we can just make things out of nothing because apparently we can turn information into matter now. Yeah. Um, but, like, this thing that she has done has allowed them the ability to take lifeless bodies and turn them into habitable planets. Now, that is a, that is an ethical, like, case of cancer <laughs> kits, right? It is, it is so far removed even from a bag of cats. Like, holy crap, are you kidding me? But, but the scientific accomplishment of that is phenomenal. And I love that they, like... Yeah. yeah, this is a movie of the early 80s, and it was a, the lead scientist is a woman. And you're right, it's also interesting, especially what you just said, that to some extent, the conflict now is Khan trying to, so you've got Kirk and Khan fighting over this incredible scientific achievement that was done by a woman. And, and that is... Khan once again trying to steal from women. Yeah, <laughs> also true, also true. Um, one thing I wanted to throw in, it's just an interesting comment. I don't think it, it, it bears too much examination, but it was something I noted, especially having just seen the TV episode. As I mentioned before, in that TV episode, we're very clearly told that the these, these supermen who are on Khan's ship, on a, and that they're called supermen, but there are women as well, are drawn from all parts of the world. And they make a, a, a distinct point of showing you his kind of second-in-command is this um, Latino man. Uh, what, <clears throat> I mean, they call him like Diego, whatever. So something is very clearly supposed to put a stamp on it. Yeah. Look, he is Hispanic, you know, or mm-hmm. Spanish, or whatever right. it is. Uh, and there's something I think also of Japanese ancestry, things like that. In the movie, it looks so. So basically, in that idea, eugenics is multiracial. Right. In the movie, they're all Aryan. Right. They are almost all even Khan. His hair, like I mean, Ricardo Montalban is not Aryan. Not by any means. Right. But his hair is blonde, and granted, he's been on this like desert planet, and it's bleached his hair, and I can I can understand that. But all of the people in his group have like they look almost kind of like the people out of um the original Mad Max movies, like the Australian kind of wonderkin. You know, like all long blonde hair, blue or brown eyes, very pale skin. Um, continuity wise, they're all about. 20, 25 years old, which would have made them 10 at the right. time they were on the ship, which was not, so that, that's kind of a continuity fail, but but even then, I, I, I wonder if you noted that, that it, it seemed this shift back towards, if we're talking about eugenics, we're talking more about German, you know, German right. Nazi style, 
Aryan kind of eugenics. Right, I and mean, there's two possible explanations for, or three really, and I think one of them is right. Uh, the first is that that planet's actually Arrakis. Uh, it was a joke <laughs> I while we were watching the movie, but uh, and if you look at it, you know they're they're all like wide eyed and yep. they're so for for Khan specifically. I actually think it's worse. We're meant to think that he's aged to the point where his hair has gone more white. I, I think that's the case. It's yeah. closer to white than blonde, really. Um, and it is the exact same actor. It is Ricardo Montalban, both in Space Seed and right. in. So, like, he is the you know that character's actually aged appropriately. Right. Um, everybody else, yes, because he like it. I in some ways I feel like they wanted to tell a story about our you know. It, Slowly enfeebling protagonists having to deal with um, these, you know, these vital and capable antagonists. Right. Um, and, you know, what's funny is that uh, if you look at all their physiques, Ricardo Montalban's is like the best of all of them. <laughs> and he's clearly in his 50s and just is amazing. To, to the point that we actually wondered, and apparently there's some yeah. debate about whether or not he had a chest prosthetic. We looked this up. Those are his actual chest muscles. Which makes me hate all the time I'm not standing in the gym. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> apparently we're all bringing, like, our D-minus team, and Ricardo Montalban found a way to go past A-plus, like, whatever crops. But it does make me believe that I can be 48, join a gym, work like crazy, and still get to that. So, there's hope. But but in terms of, so, so that, was, that was a very long digression, because the, the question you actually answer, asked is really complicated to answer. Um, I, I feel like... It is possible that they were intending to try to paint eugenics in this very evil light by making a deliberate call to the, the sort of Aryan supremacy ideology, the, the, the right. Nazi ideology. Um, I also think it is entirely possible that they just wanted a group of young, attractive people to yeah. look to, to be on screen and be young, attractive people because it's Hollywood. Yeah. And they didn't have enough because they were using a bunch of 50-year-old people <laughs> or however old they were at the time. Yeah, I think both are possible. You know, I I, I have to, and again, I mean, to, in today's world, unfortunately, Nazis are foremost in my mind. And I, I was five when the movie came out. I can't talk to the cultural zeitgeist. But I have to imagine that to some extent there was still, you said the eugen word eugenics, people thought about Nazis. Mm -hmm. So I have to imagine it was at least somewhat the thinking, but I think you're also right. It was also... You know, young, attractive people get them in the movie somehow. And the, you know, the I, I do remember from the eighties that blonde hair was something that people were saying was just unattractive quality. Oh yeah, I mean, and there's that's still somewhat true to this day. It's still well, true as in an idea that that pervades, right? But not an idea that I subscribe to or agree with. Doesn't make no sense, right? Um, <laughs> it's like whatever. But um, but like. Which, we're not saying that blondes are unattractive. Just Agreed. Right, 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 right. <laughs> we're just saying, but yeah, that, that, that cultural are, bias towards, you know, yeah, one yeah. particular hair color or another. Right, exactly. Except, um, of course, gingers are superior. Well, yes, right. I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> the lack of soul gives us superior abilities. Um, <laughs> but I do think it, it's also interesting that, again, continuity-wise, it doesn't make any sense that Khan is surrounded by so many young people. Right. But it also plays into this theme that we're always hitting on of this movie which is of age, and which is the way the young are suffering for the dreams and the foibles and the inability to deal with life of the old. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, today we have so much talk about millennials being burdened by baby boomers and all this kind of stuff, and uh, Gen Xers like myself are sort of caught in the middle. But, but I do think that there's an interesting thing that so much of this movie is about the old, not the elderly, or people in their 50s, the middle-aged, 
uh, not being able to deal with that, you know, and that um, Khan's second in command, the only other one who really has much of a speaking role, I don't think he's supposed to be his son, because it would be only about 15 years later, but clearly has a hero worship towards him, as well as a attempt, like, there are a couple of moments where Khan's ambition and Khan's rage and almost having gone mad in his feelings about Kirk drives him to make reckless decisions and this younger person whose name I, I can't remember the name of the character um but he's trying to kind of rein Khan in a little bit and it it, it felt to me very much the way you're sort of like dad can, can, we, can we not do that you know that's like, funny I didn't get a father son out of that I and maybe this is my own biases I thought there was a possible romantic connection there interesting and that, that he was... Con because I don't... Like, let's be clear. Roddenberry was progressive in a lot of ways. Um, and sexuality is something that gets explored uh, more so in Next Gen. But this is 1982 when this movie came out. And Next Generation was something that was sort of like in the process at that time. Right. Star Trek Next Generation was, was in the works. Writing was already happening, if I recall correctly, at that time. I do feel like this. A lot of their interactions... I feel like Khan treasures this person, right? And he's right. got Khan's ear, and I think a good reason for that could be that he's that, that they developed that that particular connection. That that's what I took from it. Interesting. It's possible that he's his son, but like I don't know. Yeah, I mean, continuity wise, the son part doesn't make any sense, and I don't. I don't think he's actually. I, I would say I don't think he's actually supposed to be his son. I certainly don't think they were supposed to imply that they were actually lovers. Right. But I think they were clearly trying to draw upon. There is an energy that happens between an older and a younger male of when they're in a distinct power dynamic hierarchy that it can be father son, it can be commanding officer, you know, junior officer. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, in our more modern times, you know, it can be like dad or it can be daddy, yeah, you know, right, like right, either right, right, way, right. like, and I, I would guess at the end of the day, I don't think they were trying to imply it was either one of those, but in the same way that I think they would never in a million years say that, that Spock and Kirk or McCoy or any of them were supposed to be lovers, right? but they knew that some of their fans wanted that and weren't afraid to bait that needle a little bit. I think certainly they were happily playing into the whole range of feelings that happen between such a, like like you said, a man's man like Khan and a younger man who wants to be that. Right. I, I feel like if if that character was intended to be Khan's son, they want it because they know the plot of the next movie already. It's very clear uh, from the ending scenes that they know what the search for Spock is going to be about. They absolutely would have had Khan name that Kirk killed his son. Yeah. Be, for the additional emotional impact at the end of Star Trek Three, yeah, and I should say I I don't think in any way the writers right. wanted us to think he was his son. I think it's more like he do, had a I, fatherly feeling. No, I, and I I one hundred percent see the dynamic you're talking about because there's a power dynamic there. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, like Khan is a great example of what happens when you have a an authority figure who can't really be questioned or challenged sufficiently. Uh, go off the rails, and, and that creates a problem where everybody dies. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, so well, I mean, that was the point that um, um, the um, Hop Scott Friday on Twitter was making when he said that in the in the new movie, in this movie, it's about cults, and there is, right. I think, that idea of this young man has a fanatical devotion to Khan, and Khan gets him killed. 
Right. You know, in part because Khan doesn't listen to him. And that's, there's a lot of interesting, interesting ideas there. Yeah, so, it's, it's tough. Because, yeah, no, like, this, this one's, this particular situation, I think, is, I would like to have seen more than one of his people challenging yeah. him, but clearly they had, I, I think, it's also possible what we're meant to take away from that is he was being groomed as sort of the, the next generation. Right. Which then does point to him being a progeny of one of the original products of Eugenics. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we could get into so much possible fan canon about this <laughs> character that died and is now irrelevant, and whose name we can't even remember. Um, Though I, I appreciate it that um, uh, Jacob hasn't mentioned it. I, I will mention that the actor is always going to be dear to my heart. Because he also appears in a very pivotal episode of Babylon 5, um, torturing, uh, Sinclair. But, moving along. <laughs> um, so, what do we, th- what do you think of Khan himself? Khan as a character. Like, Khan as a character and a villain. What, what, what are the issues that he brings up? So, I mean, obviously, the, the, the one that is the most on the nose is the, the obsession with revenge. Right. right? Uh, go, calling back to our devotion to a cause episode, the, the idea that he is so blinded by he's so blinded by his quest for revenge that he misses a very obvious solution to his problem when when the Enterprise is entering the nebula and Kirk taunts him, he could have just fired the Genesis device into there and turned them into a turned them into a new planet and new life right. and gone like I win, I got to be God and I killed Kirk and I got I got to both have and eat my cake, right? Instead. You know, he doesn't, and he continues to make poor decisions throughout the movie. You, you noticed my nitpick where I didn't believe that he didn't understand when they were speaking in code. Right. But if you take that uh, Again, a, for those who haven't seen it, there's a pivotal scene where Spock and Kirk sort of outwit him, and it's this interesting callback to the fact that Kirk hasn't been obeying regulations that Savik points out, right. and now Kirk is willing to, um, you know, he speaks in code going, quote, by the book. And you're right. right it, Khan should catch that, but he doesn't. And I think he doesn't because he is so consumed by this concept of revenge, by by, yeah. by getting his revenge, and by like the fact that he is the superior intellect and he will have the upper hand. There's a conceit to the character of Khan. It's consistent. It was in Space Seed, and it's in this one. And I like the I like as a villain somebody who is clearly very intelligent, very capable, and their confidence. Is actually what is their downfall. Ultimately. Yeah, that they're so assured, they're so dare I say it, arrogant that that our protagonists can use that against them. Right, and and I think there's two things there. One is that in that regard, Kirk is very much like him. Yes, you know, I think Khan is also the person who has never faced the Kobayashi Maru, and that's sort of the whole point. But I also think it's interesting, and again, here I don't know how much this was intentional, but throughout the series and throughout the original series movies. Spock is incredibly condescending towards all the humans about him. And he does it in a charming, hilarious way, and in a way where very clearly he doesn't even mean to be, it's, he just, it is so clear to him that he is smarter than everyone else, in large part because he does not let emotion cloud his thinking. And so I think it's interesting that they make a point of, uh, many times of saying Khan is not only genetically superior in strength, he's genetically superior, he has a superior intellect. And yet he is 100% a slave to his emotions. Mm-hmm. He is a slave to his ego. He's a slave to his revenge. 
he's the pole. If, if him and Spock are both intellectual superiors of everyone else, they're also polar opposites on this logic emotion problem. Uh, uh, right. And I think we're, we're clearly supposed to think that at the end of the day, Spock's is the superior intellect of all of them. Right. I, and, and as a kind of a nitpick of, of the writing in this case, uh, I guess it's way too late to, to make any amendments or changes, <laughs> but I would have liked it better if Khan's premise for revenge wasn't fundamentally flawed. It would have, I would have liked it more if he really had a point and had a, a, a reason for, for doing this that wasn't based on a false premise. Right. Right. So, so give a brief explanation right. of what you mean there. So, so no, I, of, I disagree with that. But yeah, so at the end of Space Seed, uh, Kirk uh, has, has manu- effectively maneuvered Khan, in, but like in a way where he's like, here, you can go live on this class M planet, it's habitable, and you can make your, your civilization. Right? Um, and so he's like, it's intended at the end of this episode to be like, man, did Kirk just do a bad? Like that—that's not how we should deal with this problem. Is just to sort of let it, let it grow on its own and see what happens. And, and that's very intentionally just a name. That's what the name of the episode is somewhat a, a reference to. Spacey, mm-hmm. because one of the last lines is—I I wrote this down. Spock says, "I'll be very curious to see." What crop has grown from the seed you planted? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, <clears throat> in many ways, the movie is, is calling that out, that this is one of Kirk's biggest mistakes coming back to haunt him. Right. Um, but the, the thing is, again, the planet that he leaves him on is, you know, is fine for habitation, right? Uh, then a neighboring planet explodes, shifts the orbit of, of that, and turns it, of the planet that they're on, and turns it into a desolate wasteland. Right. Is almost completely unsurvivable. They're able to survive because of Khan's superior intellect, right. right? Because he can at least find a way for them to survive, uh, but not really thrive. And he's been there for years and years and years. But what what drives me nuts is that he's he wants revenge on Kirk for for having him in that situation. But the thing that put him in that situation wasn't. Kirk putting him on the planet it was something outside of either of their control. And just, like, to me, I feel like his his impetus for revenge there, Kirk gave him the opportunity, right? And I didn't think it was right for Kirk to do that. I thought it was a very dangerous uh, idea. And it should have come back to haunt him in that, you know, Khan's developed a society and, and that society is actually a problem because of that. You know, technology and they have really backwards ideas and, and whatever. But instead, the problem is that it's created this one Captain Ahab like character, right. right? Who is consumed with this idea of wanting to get revenge specifically on Kirk. And so it's it's entirely Kirk's battle. But the, circum- the circumstances that Khan is in that, that brings him to this road, that brings him down the road of revenge, are not actually Kirk's fault. Right. And so that bothers me because I feel like Khan is being intellectually dishonest with himself in order to feed into his own narrative of revenge. See, I I think you're somewhat right, but I think that isn't bad writing in the way you're thinking because I think one of the things that I think we often see, um, we saw this with, with Kavanaugh quite recently, is that people who are used to always being the best, always being right, always being um, privileged, will when challenged, feel incredibly victimized, even when they're not actually being, you know, you, 
if, if an obstacle is in their way, they will feel like the obstacle has been put in their way because they see everything through that lens of it's all about me. And very much part of the idea we're supposed to build up is that that's exactly Khan. Khan has always been the strongest in the room, the best in the room, the fastest in the room, etc. And an unapologetic and, narcissist. An absolute unapologetic narcissist. And so to me, I think you're right that he is logically incorrect. But I think that's actually very fitting for a man of, of his character. Um, that's fair. I guess what I'm saying is that it would have been more compelling to me if it was entirely Kirk's fault. Right. Right. Rather than being uh, Kirk made a decision that I disagreed with, but it's not that decision specifically. It's not the consequences of that that are coming back to haunt right. The only the <clears throat> micro decision, the portion of the decision is just letting Khan live. That's the only thing he's getting punished for. And letting Khan live, I didn't necessarily disagree with. Right. I mean, like, there's one point, a throwaway line where Khan says, Kirk never even came back to check up on us. Right. If that had been more the, the thing he's upset about right. rather than what happened to City Alpha 6, I think you're right. I think that could, that would fit a little bit more. Um, and it's, in a way, I also think it's, it's something we're spoiled on, is that I do think, not that writing has gotten better, but that in, <coughs> excuse me, I wish I could edit that out, I got some phlegm, in the age of the internet, writing has to be a lot more specific. Writing has to be a lot, like, I, I do think, I think if we watched Casablanca again, it's one of my absolute favorite movies, I am sure there are logical inconsistencies that if you watch it a hundred times, frame by frame, you pick up on that the writers never worried about because nobody would watch the movie in that regard. You know, in the same way, I kind of feel like this. Like, there is some things that today look to us like sloppy writing because I think... I I, I don't think it's sloppy writing. I I just want to quick clarify. I'm not saying it's sloppy writing. I'm saying that I I wanted a different, a slightly different story here and it's not that, like, I love the story that we don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, again, I just, for me, wanted, I wanted it to be that much more compelling. I wanted Khan's quest for revenge against Kirk to be more justified than, than I feel it is. Yeah. That Does that sense. make sense? And I mean, like, so you're, you're right, though, that we are spoiled because, um, now that we've conditioned, <laughs> like writers now get like almost instantaneous feedback on their work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in in this day and age where we're all communicating with each other um, almost as fast as we can pick up our phones, right? Uh, and so because of that, you know, you can get this sort of nice incremental improvement over time to any piece of any right. piece of, of developing medium, um, and like. They, I'm not saying they didn't have that back in the day, right? Because there were definitely writers' rooms still. There were definitely right. people, you know, bouncing ideas back and forth and like, talking with each other. But it, you know, you have more minds, so there's there's a possibility of accessing that gestalt, right? Right. The, the I, collective subconscious. I will say, um, oh gosh, what was the point I was going to make? Um, oh, <clears throat> I remember. So obviously. Uh, this is a very specific Captain Ahab story. Khan is Captain Ahab, Kirk is the White Whale, and I do wonder here if, again, I, I somehow made it through all of American literature in high school without reading Moby Dick, so I'm going only by what I know about that book from the, again, the piece of the cultural zeitgeist. But, you know, in the book, Ahab feels that he is justified in hunting down this awful, evil creature of a whale because it has done these terrible things to him, 
But at the end of the day, the whale is a living creature trying not to be hunted and killed. Mm. And it's sort of hard to say that anything the whale is doing, Moby Dick is doing, is not justified. And so Captain Ahab's whole idea of being aggrieved and being wronged and needing revenge is in and of itself ridiculous. And I do wonder if that's part of what they're going at here, is that Khan, you know, because again, I think it's, the, and I think this is a good way to segue into the next thing I want to talk about, which is Khan's sort of belief in his superiority. Part of that belief is that he feels, and this comes up in the episode as well, he feels like he deserves to rule, and so anyone getting in the way of that is wronging him. Right. They are stopping him from his natural ambition. Right. Um, and that feels very, it, 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 again, it feels to me very much like that at the heart is what Khan is upset at Kurt for. And, and you're right that it's, and, and I think it was an intentional retelling of uh, Moby Dick, at least from Khan's perspective. Khan's character is literally Captain Ahab in this. They lampshade it very early. Moby Dick is on the shelves in the Rockney yeah. Bay. Uh, if, you, if you notice and, it. And he shot, quotes that yeah. book frequently. Yep. And, he, and he quotes that book frequently, yes. Especially, like, with his dying breaths. He's, right. He's, you know, in that scene where, or just before, it talks about, you know, if Captain Ahab, if, if Ahab's chest was a cannon, he would have fired his heart into the creature to kill it. Right. Right. Which is effectively what uh, Khan was trying to do, killing himself to try to kill the creature. Right. So let's transition a bit, though, still talking about Khan. And this is actually going to be an interesting discussion because it relates to a discussion we're going to have in a couple months when we talk about The rec- the Reckoners, a young adult book by Brandon Sanderson, and bring our friend Tim Avalon to talk about it. So much of the time, what we talk about is this idea of people who have great power and in the Peter Parker idea, our Uncle Ben, have great responsibility. People who have great power and use it for good. The premise of both Space Seed and Wrath of Khan is much darker, is great power corrupts. Um, what, what, and you know, and like I said, Spock specifically says, great power leads to great ambition. And we're very clearly seen to be seen that people who are genetically superior, who look down on everyone else, will not be able to treat them as equals and to live harmoniously with them. Um, what, what's your kind of take on that position? I mean, I feel like it is uh, more... It's a less uh, idealized ide- or idealized look at things. It's probably more realistic yeah. to think that when someone has greater capability for enacting change, that their, their inclination is far more likely to be to use that to make the change they think the world needs than it is to really try to rein themselves in and... Yeah. and like put checks in place, and, and so what they're going to do is they're going to use that power to, or in the Khan's case, that intellect and that capacity to make the changes and make the world better because they know what's right. Make the world right. better as they believe it. Right, exactly. Right. right. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think it's not idealistic, but certainly historically, it feels much more accurate. You know, every time. Um, we don't. I don't think we uh, um, have ever had people who are genetically superior. I think we very much have not. But we have had people. Um, the book Guns, Germs, and Steel is a great argument for this. You know that we have pe- certain peoples who, by historical accident of access to resources or development of different ideas, you know, develop different technology at different rates. Uh, and and then especially in in you know Europe and then America, 
you had people who were very clear about we are superior because God has wanted us to be. God gave us guns. God mm. gave us better weapons so that we could rule over these lesser races. Um, and in that regard, I feel like, you know, Khan is very accurate that a person who, and it, it in many ways calls back to um, a lot of the discussions we've had about the X-Men, you know, that like the reason why society is so afraid of the X-Men I think is with some good reason because I think society is very afraid the X-Men will turn into, you know, um, in some ways, like, I think Magneto is a more moral person in some ways and is certainly presented as a much more admirable hero. But I feel like Magneto and Khan would be, would really agree on a lot of things. You know, they have a very similar perspective of we are a higher evolved form of life. Mm. And why should we hold ourselves to the standards of our inferiors? Right. Uh, and, I mean, we have problems with that because we don't like it when somebody assumes they're superior and then takes actions to to do what they think is right with the inferior people and not, and not uh, subject themselves to any kind of, of, of check or scrutiny by the people they are affecting. Right, we have we we have real problems with that in our society. Right, right? we we feel that that is a moral problem, uh, and it is our imperative to fight against those things when we observe them. And if either of us had access to superpowers, I feel like we would also be very tempted to use those to enact the kind of changes we'd want to see. Yeah, and yeah, you know what, like. I don't think that is right, necessarily, but I do think that that's, again, realistic, and I'm not, it, it, this is really weird, I'm not sure I want to call it wrong either, like, the thing is that we constantly are are motivated by our desire to, to make changes that we want, right? right? Uh, having superior means to do that doesn't change that desire, right? It just changes accessibility. Right. And I feel like, especially if it, if it happens subtly or you've had it your entire life, it's just going to seem like you're acting like everybody else. You just have a higher capacity. Yeah. And, I, and here I actually think that it's, I don't know if it's intentional, but this to me speaks to one of my biggest critiques of a lot of that 1950s, 1960s science fiction literature, which is the hubris of intelligence. You know, that um, Robert Heinlein especially does this, and I'm maybe going to piss off a bunch of our fans, and I hope not, but certainly feel free to discuss this with me. I appreciate Heinlein's writing, and I appreciate the things he set up, and I appreciate some of what he wrote about polyamory, although some of it is wildly misogynistic. But one of the, the conceits in many of Highland's books, as well as in a lot of the science fiction of his day, and still the science fiction of, and even just the geek talk I hear about a lot today, is if only smart people were in charge, the world would be so much better. And the, the moon is a harsh mis- the moon is a harsh mistress is the book I think of Highland's that does this the most, but he does this in a number of ones, where basically the idea is that a bunch of really smart people should just basically be a dictatorship, even if people don't know it because they're smarter and they'll do the right thing. And I I feel like they have more, there's never a belief that Khan has any kind of benevolent motive. He he wants to offer order and, and 
but it is clear that he has no understanding of what other people want. Often this is portrayed as people, smart people would know what other people want, so it's not quite as extreme, but I think it's the same idea of that there's a real danger of thinking that you know best and thinking that you can enact what is best for others. You know, to me, this is white guilt. This is white privilege. This is, um, you know, the entire history of benevolent colonialism and all this kind of stuff. Right. No, it's this idea, and it's it's a conceit that continues to this day. It is still, it's pervasive among uh, self-identified intellectuals. Uh, speaking as a self-identified intellectual, there is this conceit, it's very difficult to fight against, that um, intelligence is sort of a zero-sum game. And if you are more, if you are sufficiently more intelligent than somebody else, that means you are across the board better in mental faculties than, than them in every other way. And that is not how human beings work. It's not how brains work. That's not how intelligence works. Right. right? There are multiple different forms and facets that you can take. Uh, there's different forms of knowledge and different, different ways to apply that knowledge. And it's... It is so much more nuanced than that, and it's just incredibly intellectually dishonest. It's a beautiful fantasy that we tell ourselves to say, well, I'm smarter, I'm clearly smarter than these people, and some of us get conditioned in this behavior by what happens during our formative years, right. uh, when intellectuals are not, when people who are sort of seen as intelligent are not really as valued uh, right. necessarily in, in certain, and that, that's a cultural thing. Um, it's something I'd like to see your culture move away from because it engenders this sort of of bitterness and this sort of idea that, well, I'm really superior, right. right? And you reinforce that superiority and then you start thinking in terms of, I am better in this one aspect and this one aspect is everything, right? right? Intelligence is everything and that's just, that conceit just, that he's a dianifier. It's a terrible idea, but it is something that Khan embodies. Right. right. And, and I think at the end of the day, to me, not that I think anyone is superior to anyone else, but to me, one of the most important traits is the ability to be self-reflective and to learn. And I do feel like, although they are obviously genetically at different places, at the start of the movie, both Kirk and Khan have the exact same hubris. I mean, in many regards, Kirk deciding to say, I'll just be benevolent and put Khan and his people on this planet. I'm sure nothing could go wrong. That's the height of hubris yeah. as well. Um, in the exact same kind of I know best sort of way. And what happens is, halfway through the movie, Kirk is Kirk has to face his own failure and learns from it. And learns to challenge his own hubris. And learns to kind of back off from that in a way that Khan is never able to learn from. Right. And at the end of the day, I feel like that's kind of the point of the movie, which I agree with, is if anyone is superior, it is Kirk because of that. Right. And in a lot of ways, I feel like Kirk owes this to Spock. Yes. Um, in, this is for multiple reasons. Actually, this is one of the things I, this is another thing I really love about this movie, is that um, throughout it, Spock is doing things for Kirk. Because Spock has this understanding of what Kirk's needs are that Kirk doesn't. Right. Um, he gives them. He gives him a tale of two cities, a copy of tale of two cities, um, and says, "No, there's there's no subtext there whatsoever. One hundred percent there is." And Spock knows it, but he knows if he names it for Kirk that Kirk, because Kirk doesn't respond to direct feedback well. Right. Uh, he knows if he names it that it's not going to be received. But he plants the idea, it'll get called back to later, 
and then Kirk will be able to digest it. Later when they're talking in uh, Spock's quarters, and Spock is like, Kirk, you should assume command. We're going into an active mission here. This is your place. This is what you need to do. Spock spins a logical argument in Kirk's face, saying, here's why. What Spock is doing there is, is saying, I, as your friend, understand that you need this. I can't tell you that because that will trigger your, your rebellious instinct right. and make you say no even harder. But I know that this is what you need right now. I know that you're facing a crisis. And then at the very end of the movie... I, I'm not sure that that's true because I would say, I think Spock knows that it will be better for Kirk to be in command. But I think at the end of the day... What Spock cares about is that he thinks it will be better for the crew if Kirk is in command. And unfortunately, I think it winds up that, well, no, because I think, I, I do think Spock thinks, and with good reason, that Kirk has more of an ability to be a tactical fighter. And that even though Kirk makes a major mistake, I think we are supposed to think Kirk still saved the day a little more than Spock would have. I don't think Spock, I, because certainly I don't think Spock would ever endanger the rest of the crew for the sake of helping his friend. And I don't I don't think that's what it's about. I do think that Spock thinks that Kirk 100% has the, the greater amount of command experience. I'm saying that I think the motivating factor, the motivating reason, is not the reason he gives Kirk. He gives Kirk a logical reason because that's what Kirk needs to do. Um, and it is correct. It's still right that Kirk's right, the right. right person for this job. But Spock is doing it, in my opinion, because of, again, how the movie is framed, where this is basically a, a lot of the Spock-Kirk interactions are Spock mentoring Kirk in a way right. that it was flipped in the original series where Kirk was trying to mentor Spock about how he needs to do Right. Right? And in this, now Spock is, we've sort of come full circle, now Spock is all like, here's here's the things that you don't understand about yourself that I'm going to help you with. Right. And I, he knows him well enough to know how to make it work. Right. And I just, that for me, the, again, this, you could call this all headcanon, it possibly is, but because of those story beats, because of how they play along with each other, up until and including Spock's decision to, to make the sacrifice, after talking with Kirk about the needs of the money away and needs of the week earlier, and then calling back to it and as sort of his death knell, as his dying right. words, right, to justify the decision. It's it's Spock's little nicely packaged lesson for Kirk about, look, I see that you're struggling with this position in your life. Here's your answer. Here's what you've been looking for, and it's you got to take a take a deep hard look at yourself yeah. and change some of the things you've been doing. You can't be the brash young captain anymore who who just laughs in the face of danger and defies all odds. You have to be the person that takes a good hard sobering look at your chief engineer's nephew. Uh, you know, getting covered over by the doctor because he just died. Yeah. Well, I think that there's two important things there. Um, the first being, I, I, like I said, I don't fully agree with you on that specific point, but I think overall in general, you're right. Spock is managing Kirk, and Spock is helping Kirk in so many ways, and, and it, it's part of their friendship, and their mentor-mentee back-and-forth relationship. The other thing, though, is uh, I, I think you bring up something I hadn't even thought of, but I think it's very true, is that here's another way in which Kirk is superior to Khan, Kirk listens to others. And then at the end of the day, it's not even that Kirk is superior, it's that Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, right. like the Enterprise crew, because as you said, we don't learn that, we don't ever hear any of the others talk to Khan, and the one who does talk to him, he barely listens to and actively ignores. 
Whereas Kirk, because again, it isn't, um, you know, one of the chief sort of traits of over uh, abundance of ego is an inability to listen to others when they're yeah. telling you you're wrong. Yeah. And Kirk has that. Kirk listens. You know, Savick. I don't. I don't even know if Spock would have done, but Savick would not have been ambushed by by Khan. Yeah. And Savick tries to warn Kirk. Yep. And she she's right. He's wrong. And he immediately names that. Immediately yep. tells her, "Keep doing what you're doing." Yep. I got caught with my pants down in a way that Khan is never able to admit. And yep. I think that we've talked about it before that, you know, that same idea of how like Cap and Tony are both better when they listen to each other, you know, that the, the teams are what we need of accountability, you know, and uh, here I was actually, I bring it all kind of full circle. You go ahead and thought of this when I was starting it. To me, that's the answer of, I think great power can almost always corrupt the hedge against that is accountability. Right. Is having accountability to those you're having power over or power with, to the others who have the same kind of power you do, that's the hedge that isn't always successful, but at least is better than just pure independent power. Right. Right. And this is something that Kirk, like, this isn't a, him listening to other people isn't a new phenomenon for his character. Um, yeah, like he regularly sought the counsel of McCoy and Spock during the original series. And so I, I love that, and I agree with you, that this movie shows you that the, the major difference, the winning factor between Kirk and, and Khan isn't that Kirk is smarter than Khan or stronger than Khan or, or superior individually to Khan. It's not telling us the story of this one person who's, you know, better and is going to save everybody. It's telling us of this one person who actually listens to other people Right. Versus this other person who doesn't. I mean, even the sort of like winning move that he does, where the the, the idea is that um, Khan thinks of space two dimensionally and and mm -hmm. doesn't think of it three dimensionally, and they're able to use that to sort of Spock proposes yeah, it. yeah. Spock proposes it, not mm -hmm. not her. Anyway, a minor nitpick. Uh, he mentions a Z direction for the up down motion. Uh, right hand rules say that that should, I think, be the x axis. But this, <laughs> look, you're making a science fiction movie, you should probably know science, but right. uh, yeah. very, very minor nitpick again. And you can argue the coordinate system is, is uh set from a different starting point, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, so we've gone now quite a while, there's so much more we could talk about. Um, but we should start wrapping up, if not if for anything else, for the sake of both of our relationships, of the mm -hmm. people who are waiting at home for us to go to sleep. Yep. Um, but what are some of the last things you want? I've got one or two sort of last small things I wanted to comment on. What do you have in your notes that you uh, wanted the, to mention? The big one was actually, we got to it, the big one was uh, the Spock's role in the movie. I really wanted to talk about that. Um, I, I did, like, I have a throwaway thing in here about how McCoy... In very early on for Kirk's birthday definitely brings him pot and they talk about it like yeah. it's pot. Right? <laughs> it's all like, oh, Romulan ale? But, but why bones? This is illegal. I mean, it's like said in a, in a fashion of we are definitely consuming this. Yeah. But like, it's, it's, so I found that particularly amusing given. Yeah. Well, he even says, culture. I'm bringing this for medicinal purposes. Yeah. I would even say he brought him cocaine. But yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, for sure. He's bringing him in illegal. Kind of like, oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, but it's funny that, uh, you know, as much th many things change and some things stay the same, there's still that, that kind mm -hmm. of idea rolling around. Um, there's this whole thing with, with his glasses that I, like, wanted to touch on, but it's really more of a, a, a like, good job writer's thing than it yeah. is a talking about any ethical considerations. So I, I don't want to make this go even longer talking about that. Um, other than that, we've, we've actually covered 
uh, all of my notes, uh, with the possible exception of, um, could talk a little bit more about Savic. There's the scene in the, um, in the turbo lift, mm -hmm. uh, or elevator as, uh, McCoy calls <laughs> it, uh, where Savic comes in and she's in, you know, somewhat off-duty clothes, and the first thing her comments on is her hair. God. Right. It's such straight up sexual harassment. Yeah, yeah. It is. And like her response is a very like it's still regulation and like deadpan glares right. at her. And I, I like that for I like her response to it of like not even dignifying it with a um with a response other than to say that like why are we talking about my hair basically? But it's still a situation that I was like, Man, I love this movie, but why why did we have that interaction? Yeah. Like, it leads into a really good conversation about the Kobayashi Maru, where Kirk plays really coy and is, once again, very patronizing. But the fact that it, that's thrown back in his face at the end, yeah. when he's all like, I've never had to face, I realize I've never had to face it, now that I have, I realize I'm an idiot, right? Yeah, I, I will say I liked the role that Slavic plays in a couple of scenes. I overall think her character is one of the weakest parts of the movie, because I think it was... An attempt to get, and like Kirstie Alley is a good actress and was a, a popular actress at the time. I think it was an attempt to get a young, attractive actress into the movie. She also shows more emotion than any Vulcan ever has in Star Trek. In and incorrect. Incorrect. Then who is it in Pomfar? No, no, no. To Paul. To Paul on Enterprise shows way more emotion. Okay. Agreed. Right. Agreed. Well, right. so there's an interesting thing. Right. Why it's... is it that the two, uh, the two Vulcans who most kind of go against the Vulcan, you know, uh, Vulcans are emotionless, are both attractive young women. Like, you, I, I, I... You know the answer to that question. Of course you don't I know the answer, have to yeah. tell me, like, yeah, it's... That's super unfortunate, and I would love to see that finally get subverted, but I guess that's never happening. Yeah. Um, it is, I will say, it's one good thing about the new show. Um, okay. With, I think it's just called Star... No, what's... Frontier. Front, right? Yeah, Frontier. Yeah. Um, couple of quick things I wanted to mention. Um... Two sort of minor quibbles, and then one thing that I really did like. One, in his death scene, um, well, actually, I'll start with a phrase and then a quibble. Spock says, you know, he says, this was my Kobayashi Maru. How did you like my solution? Mm -hmm. And what I appreciate is that he names, I think, what is true in that, to me, on some level, I feel like there is, you're right, you have to be willing to accept the bad situation, but that the whole thing is that, in some ways, it's, I don't think there is any such thing as a no-win scenario. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the way you should understand a theoretical no-win scenario is to understand that most of the time, no answer is perfect. That most of the time, what you're trying to do is not to win, but honestly, the, re the response to a crisis is to figure out a way to lose the least. Mm -hmm. You know, and we've talked about before that we're frustrated that some of our characters always are able to find a way to bridge the gap and to save everyone. And in some way, to me, that that's part of what Spock is acknowledging is every situation is to some extent a no-win scenario because there's never a way to do everything. Um, I love that. What I didn't love is then he says, do not grieve for what I did was logical. And it's a small thing. I think it's more I care. I mean, I, I'm someone who... Um, is there, sometimes I, in other parts of my life, I used to be a pastor, and recently, I recently had a, a, a friend of mine pass away, and I was sort of doing some grief support for friends and family, and I, I performed a funeral, and it, it made me think a lot about this idea that 
I think we often think that like we that grief is a way of saying that we 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 wish this had of course we wish this hadn't happened, but also like that this shouldn't have happened. And I I, I just wanted to quibble with that one line a bit because I do think something can be 100% logical and you can still grieve it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that not even just death, but like, you know, if someone you really care about gets a fantastic job on the other side of the country, you probably think the, the right thing for them is to take that job. It still sucks for you and you're going to grieve being away from them, but you still know it's the right thing to do. So right. let me throw those... I have one other thing I want to add, but I'll throw those two things out to get any response. Yeah, no, the... the, the do not grieve line um, is, I feel like, the worst. It, like, it makes sense for Spock to say it because he he's like, I know that like that means that you're suffering, and I don't want you to suffer because you're my friend. But it it paints the act of grieving as something that like you should avoid rather than being an absolutely necessary part of the process right. of having of experiencing that loss. And I would get that Spock wouldn't necessarily understand that. So, like, I can forgive the line for that reason, but it is something that, like, I want... Like, I would hope that most people would watch the movie and think, Spock, like, this isn't the writers telling us that grieving when somebody, like, died for the right reasons is not something we should do. Right. Right. But I just see somebody walking away from that. And that's, that's not a message with that. And that's not a message that I appreciate, because... Yeah. Grief is necessary. It is part of our condition. You're right. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I think, again, if it had been painted as clearly this is Spock being very Vulcan and not understanding grief, it would be one right. thing. But I do think it's a trope. I mean, not as much now, but certainly at that time, you watch military movies from the 70s and 80s, and you'll like see someone like talking to the grieving widow, and they'll say, no, don't be sad. He died for such a good cause. Mm-hmm. And I do think it has that little bit of yeah, like, there, you know. Um, two other last quick things, um, both very quick. One, I know that this is meant to be Kirk's like super emotional um, funeral speech, but Kirk at one point in that speech, the sort of pinnacle of what of praise that he says of Spock is, mm-hmm. of all the souls I have encountered, his was the most human. Mm-hmm. And that line is. A, it's just the ridiculous human-centric patronizing attitude mm-hmm. that, that, again, it's just it's like, imagine if you said, you know, I have met so many people of color and this one was the whitest I have ever met. Like, it just sounds so wrong. I also think Spock would have been so insulted by that yep. line himself. Um, so that's my one last other little quibble. The last thing I'll say, though, is that I feel like, and we touched on this briefly, I do love how much this is a movie about not young people, about people in their 50s dealing with aging. And that it is such a trope, and you and I talk about it because it's an important topic for us, we very often see see movies about sons dealing with absent fathers. It's very rare, I think, for the movie to be told from the position of the father. You know, and that clearly, in the end, he reconciles with his son. He never blames his ex. He acknowledges it's his own fault for being away. But it just it, it was kind of touching to me to see that father son dynamic told from the father's perspective. Right, and like when he after he meets David, the first time he meets his son, uh, his son tries to kill him. So not off to a great start, <laughs> right? And and he names that when he's talking with Carol, when he's talking with with David's mother, um, so the, the mother of his child, um, 
man, that phrase is re- that phrasing is really problematic, and I wish I could right. take it back because that's not like that carries an implication that I don't mean. Right? Uh, is Kirk's son and also Carol's son? Right. There. That's what I mean to say. I'm not trying to say one of them possesses it and the other one doesn't. Um, I, I mean, and in fairness, like, really, Spock, uh, Kirk is the sperm donor. I mean, right, yeah. he is much more Carol's son than he is Kirk's, and that right. Carol has raised him. Right. So, anyway, he's he's just met uh, David. He's had that in altercation, and then uh, he's talking with Carol, and he's sitting down, and he's got, he's he's clearly really shaken, and he talks about how, you know, he like he's like trying to figure out how to deal with this man who's trying to kill him and it looks like his son wants to join him and he's all like I like I'm in a position in my life now where having a family seems like something I should have cared about and should matter to me and now it does, but it's way too late in the mm-hmm. process and he's like he's dealing with that and it's sort of like what have I been doing? Why didn't I take the time to check in? You know, he's he's experiencing all of that guilt and like you know, I feel like he should be guilty, right? Or he should feel guilty about that. But it, <clears throat> but one of the things they talk about is that Carol wanted him to stay there, yeah. right? And honoring that, I feel like shows a a remarkable amount of respect from Kirk that is in some ways uncharacteristic of his character <laughs> from the original series toward the wishes of, of other people. Right. Um, but at some point, that should have been David's decision. But at that point, it feel, really feels like David also didn't have a high opinion of his father and didn't want to meet him. Yeah. So. Well, and in some ways, like I think actually we're supposed to think that David doesn't realize that Kirk is his father for most of the movie. Um, but but even putting that aside, um, I I don't think this was I don't know if this was intentional by the writers, but if so, it was absolutely brilliant. And if not, it's an interesting way that this pops up in the culture anyway. If you think about Kirk's relationships towards women, you actually have a very perfect example here of the really problematic ways that men today, but especially at that time, <clears throat> saw things through the like Madonna whore idea. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea mm-hmm. of like you can totally womanize or do all these things to women, but once someone is like the mother of your child, you know, again in that very problematic language, then they are sort of in a totally different moral category. Right. And I do I don't, again, I don't know if it was intentional, but I have to see that a bit in that Kirk flagrantly does not care about the wishes of most of the women he's interested in, but Carol is the mother of a child, of his child, again, right. using his language, her wishes she respects. Um, I don't know if the writers intended that, or if it's just the writers playing out that bias themselves, right. but it's such a marked difference. Like... Most other women, if they said if he wanted something and the woman said, "I don't want you to have that," Kirk would say, "I don't care." Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the fact that he that here, I do think, is that very interesting. Like Carol is no longer a a seducible woman; now she is a mother mm-hmm. taken out of the Madonna whore, you know, into the Madonna right. category. Right, and yeah, that's that. Kirk's a problematic character, and I don't think I, I actually kind of like that. Uh, he's never been written not as one that they've never tried to like. Uh, wash over that at any point except maybe with the Chris Pine character a yeah. little bit but like in in the original series and then the the movies um they name it and they joke about it and he's still kind of a James Bond character but I feel like there's never an attempt to apologize uh in, in a like no 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 he's fine he's actually okay kind of thing yeah I, I I I actually I 
I, I, maybe we're agreeing or maybe we're disagreeing, but I think the James Bond route is very relevant in that I think he is a character who we, by today's standards, view as problematic. Right. I don't think that the people writing, I don't think Roddenberry and other people in the writer's room in the 60s in any way, shape, or form thought of his womanizing was problematic. Yeah, I agree, I, unfortunately. I think that by the mid-80s, they were starting to see not even that it was problematic, but that it had a cost. Yep. And then with Chris Pine, they've now moved it into the kind of Sam Winchester, oh, he's just lovable. No, you mean Dean, Dean Winchester. Winchester, yeah. He's just like a lovable player, you know, isn't he ridiculous, isn't, isn't he lovable? Um, anyway, so um, so I got to have my last couple rants. I think you had your last one, but was there anything else you wanted to throw no, in as a uh, parting word? No, uh, Dean Winchester is possessed by Michael, and also that's cool. <laughs> I'm eight seasons behind and won't ever catch uh, up, so I'll take your word for it. That number is wrong. <laughs> you are more seasons being, you finished with five? Yeah. We're on like 15 or 16. Okay. Like you are, 15, you are so. way beyond. Okay. Anyway. Anyway, so probably not something we'll get into, but um, so, listeners, um, first of all, if you haven't seen Wrath of Khan, go see it. It is an amazing, if you haven't seen Wrath of Khan, go see it. It's an amazing movie. I I think what I was actually saying, I think it is the best Star Trek movie. I think it's Granted, I didn't have the love of TNG and some of the others that some other people did. Um, in part, I think because it doesn't have the campiness of some of, of so much of the TNG movies that many people love, I did not. But but certainly, it is a movie that, as we said, in many ways is the most divergent from the Roddenberry ideal of Star Trek. But it also still does what Roddenberry wants of bringing up all these great issues. So definitely go watch it, and whether you watched it or not, let us know what you think about it. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter or on email. Both uh, Twitter is uh, Superhero Ethics. Email is SuperheroEthics at gmail.com. But the best way, and I know we can kind of slow to uh, get this to happen, but I'd really love it. If you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do right now, search for the Superhero Ethics group on Facebook, and I'll post a link to it in our Facebook uh, on the, the notes for this episode. Join that group. It's a much better place to have discussions than pages. Um, we'd really love to start building some more listener interaction, um, like the great Twitter comment we got. That's what we live for. That's what we love on this podcast. We'd love to hear more of that feedback. So uh, to talk about that, uh, anything we talked about here, to talk about a past episode, please find us on there. Uh, we'd love to have keep these conversations going. Tell us what you loved about this movie. Tell us why you hate the movie, why you don't think it was a good Star Trek movie. Any of that, we'd love to hear it. Um, so again, thank you very much. I'm having myself. I'm having Jacob. Uh, great to have you tune in. Have a good day. So the biggest ethical discussion I think we're going to have about Wrath of Khan was whether it was correct to put Ricardo Montalban in a, a rubber suit, a rubber muscle suit, uh, to make him look really buff, like a like an actual result from a eugenics project, or whether they should have let his actual real torso, which is already impressive, be what he shows. Holy crap, it was real. They put makeup on it, but that's his real chest. Oh, boy.